take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, I want to bring a message this morning entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And uh, we'll just be covering uh, just the first half of the petitions in this prayer that uh, Jesus taught. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, please, Matthew chapter 6. And actually what I'm going to do is back up to verse 1, and we're going to read this passage uh, in context. Now, folks, I know we refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. Actually, this is not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The Lord's Prayer would be that which is found in John chapter 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. This, however, is the model prayer because Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, we thank you for that grand and glorious invitation we have in your word to come before you in prayer. Certainly one of the greatest opportunities that we could ever think of. To think that the sovereign God of the universe, who sits high and lifted up on His throne, and directs all things, would lend His ears that He would hear the prayers of sinful men on earth. Lord, it's staggering, but it's true because you tell us. Father, we thank you for the instruction we have in the Word of God concerning prayer. And Lord, we pray that we would take this instruction and make it a part 
of our daily lives. That we wouldn't talk about prayer, preach and teach about prayer, but that we would be a praying people. Father, I pray for that one here this morning who does not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. We know that the only prayer they have right now is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because as the writer of Hebrews points out in chapter 10 of that book, only after we have been redeemed and reconciled to you, can we go with boldness and even confidence before your throne. And so God, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would tug at that lost person's heart. That you would regenerate their soul. God, again, that all of us would be found as a praying people. Waiting eagerly and expectantly for you to come back for your bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. George Mueller is best known for the orphanage that he opened to take care of children who uh, had lost their mothers and fathers. But George Mueller was also known as a man of deep devotion and prayer. In fact, people around Mueller gave testimony of Uh, Just seeing over and over again how God honored and answered George Mueller's prayers. On one occasion, Mueller had a speaking engagement and he was aboard a ship going there. And the captain informed Mueller that the ship would have to be halted because it could not move through the dense fog. The captain reported that Mueller said, well, let's pray about that. The captain said in the most simple, humble, and unassuming way, Mueller began to pray. He said, dear God, the captain says we're stuck because of this fog. Lord, you know that I have this very important speaking engagement on your behalf. Lord, if you want me to do it, then I trust that you're going to lift this fog. The captain reported that in all of his days of being a ship's captain, he had never seen anything quite like what happened next. Because this deep bank of fog that had set in, he believed for hours upon hours, all of a sudden began to lift and dissipate completely. On another occasion, a Scottish man gave this testimony. He said, I was a very worldly man and unhappy. When my father died, I learned that he had donated large sums of money to Mueller's orphanage. And so I decided to visit this Mueller fella and find out more about him. And so I went to the orphanage. And while there at the orphanage, they were engaged in a series of revival meetings. And I heard the gospel and was saved. And those at the orphanage said they, had, they were not surprised at all to hear about my conversion because George Mueller had been praying specifically for my salvation for the past 38 years. 
The Bible teaches that prayer does indeed make a difference because God hears and answers our prayers. In James 5, the Bible says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Sometimes I think we could accomplish a whole lot more by doing less and praying more. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Now we know that there are numerous biblical examples of effective prayers. I think about that passage in Genesis 24. When Abraham sent his servant uh, to another area, to another land, to get a wife for his son Isaac. And as the servant got to that other land, he said, God, you're going to have to help me in this. You're going to have to bring Isaac's wife to me and make clear to me that she is the one for my master's son. And God did just that. And then in 1 Samuel, we meet a woman by the name of Hannah. We know that she's barren. And she desired greatly to have a son. And she prayed and she promised God that if God would give her a son that she would donate, she would dedicate that son to the Lord all the days of his life. And and God opened her womb and God gave her a son by the name of Samuel and she gave Samuel over to the Lord and he was a great man of God all the days of his life. And then we've just read about Elijah. How during the days of Ahab and Jezebel, how God closed the heavens as a result of Elijah's praying and God brought a drought on that area of the world as a judgment against them and then after three and a half years Elijah prayed again and God sent the rain. Folks we can have every confidence that God hears our prayers and God answers our prayers. In 1 John chapter 5 the Bible says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. S.D. Gordon said the greatest thing that anybody can do for God and man is to pray. It's not the only thing, but it's the chief thing. The great people of the earth are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who explain about prayer, but I mean those people who take time to pray. And R.G. Lee said to take prayer out of life is like taking heat out of fire. Melody out of music, numbers out of mathematics, facts out of history, fiction out of literature, brains out of the skull and still expecting intelligence or blood out of the body and still expecting life. And so we must pray. But folks, as we pray, we need to pray correctly. We need to pray biblically. And that's where Jesus' words here in Matthew 6 
have a great deal to say uh, to us about this. Now this morning we're going to only look at the first half of this petition uh, down through verse 10 and we're going to save the second half uh, for next week and maybe even beyond. But what we're going to learn from this model prayer is the pattern of effective praying and the petitions of effective praying. Now first of all this morning I want you to notice with me the prohibition. Jesus talks here about how not to pray. Look with me again at verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5 says, And when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you they have received their reward. And then in verse 7 he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I want you to notice, first of all, uh, Jesus sets forth, he says, When you pray. What is the assumption here? The assumption here is that a born-again child of God whose sins have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it is assumed that that person who is at peace with God and reconciled to God is going to desire these times of communion with God in prayer. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if there is no real desire in our hearts to get alone with God and pray, if there is no desire in our heart to open the Word of God and study the Scripture, to be involved in the things of God, and to get along quietly with God and pray, if there is no real yearning in our hearts to do that, then I think I would need to issue a word of warning that if that's you, you might even want to check to see if you've truly even been born again and regenerated in the first place. Because you see at regeneration it is the Holy Spirit of the living God that moves in, takes up residence in our lives and we are sealed by Him. We are baptized in the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God cries out to the Heavenly Father as Romans 8 talks about because He's the Spirit of God. And so there's that very natural assumption that a child of God is going to want to pray. And so if you don't yearn for times of prayer, I think it's either because sin has clouded your life and it's a hindrance, or possibly you don't even really know God. Jesus says here in verse 5, when you pray, when you pray, he's assuming that his children are going to want to pray. But I want you to notice the first prohibition. He says, when you pray, we must not pray with wrong motives. And he begins talking in verse 5 and 7 about those who do what they do in their religious life in order to be seen by men. He was speaking here of many of the religious leaders who did things back then for show. That was their motive. They didn't care about the glory of God. They only cared about themselves. They only cared about how they looked. 
Were men giving them praise and extending favor to them? Did they look good in the eyes of men? And so everything they did, they did out of that motive and they advertised their righteousness. Because there was a great respect for spiritual leaders, certain spiritual figures wanted men to see that they were righteous even if they weren't. And so Jesus gives two illustrations here of what his disciples are not to do. He talks about giving and he talks about praying. I'll talk about giving here briefly too, simply because he links the two together. And these two things, giving and praying, are very much a part of our weekly worship. And so Jesus talks about what we are not to do in our giving. We, the, the, many of the leaders back then and many of the people in the temple, they would, they would sound the trumpet or they would throw a large sum of money in this metal basin so that it, it would clang loudly, loudly so that everybody would know that they had given a big gift. Or brother so-and-so would have brother so-and-so announce to the other worshipers that this brother was about to give some large sum of money to meet some need they had in the community and they would make great pomp and circumstance out of giving in order to have the praise of men. Jesus said we're not to do that. Folks, this is an area where still even today we have to be very careful. In some churches, thankfully not here, there are people who want to give large sums of money so that a plaque can be put up or some building can be named after them. We don't do that. We don't do that even with the blessings of those who give large sums of money. And so I'm very grateful for their attitude in that. But there are some churches like that. I've got a friend that, that pastors a very proud First Baptist church in another state. And boy, they put plaques on everything. They put uh, certain person's names on buildings and, and Sunday school rooms. And boy, you better not come along and move a Sunday school class out of a room that's been dedicated to somebody. Woo boy! You cannot even move the pulpit in that church. That pulpit has a special dedication plaque. You don't even move the pulpit in that church, not even for a wedding or a funeral or anything else, unless it goes before a special committee in the church who approves it. And they have all these things around the church dedicated to different people. And they might need to get rid of something, but they can't because, oh, brother or sister, so-and-so gave this and we want to honor them. And if we get rid of that or move it, uh, boy, that, that, that wouldn't be the good thing to do. And so they've become enslaved to this dumb thing that they do. I pastored a church one time, something on a much smaller scale than that. Pastor a church one time that in our community, it was a, a rural community, and it was, it was great what we did. The first Friday night of, of every month, uh, all the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Baptists, everybody came to our church for a potluck fellowship meal in our fellowship hall. 
No agenda. It was just a time for everybody in the community to get together and, and, and get to know one another better and, and, and just talk and catch up with everybody. And, and probably 50, 60, 70 years previous to that, somebody in the church I pastored had donated all the china for that event. And the women were doing nothing but standing in the kitchen all night long and they were washing dishes. And so at a business meeting they said, you know what we need to do? We need to buy paper products. We're tired of missing the fellowship and, and, and spending all the evening in, in the kitchen. And this one dear brother rose to his feet and said, well I'll have you remember that Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so donated all that china for this event back in such and such year and we need to honor their gift. And she said, well fine, all you men can wash the dishes from now on. We bought the paper products. <laughs> But giving is one of those areas where people can make some kind of big show of it. And, and Jesus said, no, don't do that at all. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then he moved into this next thing, praying. The Jews had certain times that they typically prayed in the course of the day. They prayed at 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. You'll remember Daniel from the book of Daniel, how he opened, he, he was there in exile in Babylon, and he opened the windows toward Jerusalem, and at the set times of prayer every day, he would get down on his knees before God, facing Jerusalem, and he would pray. Now for many of the Jews, those set times of prayer throughout the day was just a good reminder to them that they needed to stop and they needed to recognize God. Folks, some of you may be helped a great deal in your devotional life if you would decide just ahead of time that the clock on your, your uh, wristwatch or the, the alarm that is or the alarm on your cell phone, maybe there's going to be certain times during the day that you're going to set a reminder and that when that alarm goes off, you're just going to take about 10 or 15 minutes. Don't tell anybody what you're doing. Just get away privately and pray. That might help you each day. To keep your focus. But the hypocrites of Jesus' day would plan a journey into Jerusalem or some crowded place so that they would arrive on a busy street corner right as it was time to pray. You see, the Greek word in verse 5 for the street corner is not the word in, in the Greek language for some little remote back alley, but it is the word for a major intersection or a major thoroughfare. And so what some of these hypocrites would do, they would plan their journey into town so they would be arriving at that intersection at just the time to pray and they would stop right there and they would go into a time of prayer and somebody would say, oh, look at old Joe over there, doesn't he love God? Well, maybe he doesn't love God at all, maybe he loves himself, he's just wanting to kind of build himself up. Jesus says in verse 5, they have the reward already. They're going to be rewarded. People are going to respect them. Maybe perceive them as being godly. Again, even if they're not. And people will give them that recognition that, 
the, the person giving the big gift or praying on the busy street corner or whatever it is that they were after. Uh, men might praise them for that, but Jesus says that's the only reward that they're going to get. They're not going to get a reward from God. They were after the praise of men, they got the praise of men. Case closed. And so he says when it comes to certain religious practices, we really need to check our motives. When it comes to praying, we need to check our motives. A second prohibition. We must not pray with vain repetitions, he mentions there in verse 7. The word here is batalageo. It refers to this idle babbling that just goes on and on. Now from Theodore Bayes' commentary, many, many years ago, the phrase vain repetition entered into the English language and shows up in the King James Version. The Gentiles referred to here were pagans who had all their idols and false gods. And some of them believed that in using certain phrases or formulas over and over again, sort of like an incantation, they felt that doing this would wear down their God. And he would get so tired that he would finally give in to them. Now folks, we actually have a biblical illustration of this in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. You remember that? Elijah said, I tell you what, the God who answers by fire, he's God. And, and, and Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, y'all go first. You, you caught, he was a southern boy, y'all go first. You call on the name, you call on the name of Baal. He's your God. You call on him and see if he answers by fire. And all those prophets of Baal, they got over there and they were doing their chants and vain repetitions and they were calling on Baal. Of course Baal didn't answer because he was a dead idol, false god. But they, there they were dancing around doing all their little prayer formulas. And the Bible says they were even cutting themselves. And, and Elijah's over there. Boy, he's just splitting his side laughing. He's in stitches. Hey, yell a little bit louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. But they were just the, that vain repetition. Jesus says, you, we don't need to do that. Now folks, let me say that, that this is not forbidding somebody having a deep burden on their heart and going to God over and over and over about that burden. Maybe you wake up every morning and some child of yours is heavy on your heart. Or some trial you're facing in your marriage or maybe at work. And you wake up every morning and that burden is staring you in the face. And every morning you go before God and, and you cry out for God's intervention in, in that need in your life. This is not forbidding that. We need to remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before He was crucified, Jesus went in the garden and, and knelt and prayed three times. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus told us in Matthew 7 to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. 
What Jesus is rather forbidding here is the mindset that says God doesn't care about me and so I've got to get his attention by many words and formulas and finally maybe I'll hit on the right combination that will finally get God's attention. You know, sort of like if I, if I brought one of those combination locks with me this morning and turn the dial. And you turn it to the first number and then you turn it to the second number and you know you go past it one time, you come to it again and then you turn back to the third number and boom, you pop it open and it unlocks. And there's some people who think you've got to do that in prayer. Keep trying different words, combinations, phrases. Maybe finally God will hear me. Jesus says no. Look at verse 8 here. He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, after telling us how not to pray, I want you to see secondly, the prescription. How to pray. Look with me in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 8, he said, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verses 9 and 10, he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now folks, let's, before we move on with the prescription here, let, let's set the table, let's, let's set the context, the, 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 the sits in Laban, the original setting that motivated this teaching. And we're indebted to Luke's gospel at this same passage to tell us what that context was. Remember what it was? It was Jesus' own prayer life. The disciples who walked with Jesus that three years that He was on the earth, they watched Him pray. They watched how He conducted Himself in this area of life. They watched Him how even as Mark 1.35 says, one day that He got up even long before sunrise and He went away to a private place by Himself. It was a very busy day in the life of Jesus. In fact, everybody was looking for Him when they found Him in that secluded spot and praying. And they said, Master, don't you know everybody's looking for you? But when the disciples witnessed how Jesus prayed, they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray the way you do? And that's where this comes from. That's where this teaching comes from. And so we're not simply to recite this passage week after week after week and worship the way some church traditions do. That could just become some of that vain repetition. And if that's all that we were to do with, with the model prayer, isn't it interesting that we don't see the church in the book of Acts doing it? We don't find it anywhere in the, in the epistles to churches. You see, he's not just giving us some little prayer to memorize and say every week maybe we disengage our minds and don't even think about the prayers. We're just reciting it in church. Rather, what he's doing is he's laying down some principles that are to guide us in our praying. 
Because what do we tend to do in our praying? We go before God and we just jump right into our needs. Oftentimes it's not even our needs, it's our greeds. We treat God like He's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. God, I want this, I need this, I want this, I need this. And no, Jesus is saying, no, hold it. We pray for God's interests and man's needs. And again, this week we're just going to talk about the first half. He points out here that genuine prayer must be between the person and God. Verse 6, he says, go into your inner room and shut the door. When we pray, we need to shut ourselves off from the world and set ourselves aside unto God. Now here again, maybe some clarification is needed. Jesus is not forbidding all public praying. Jesus himself prayed publicly. The early church prayed publicly. Read Acts chapter 4 sometime. The way in Acts chapter 4 verse 31 says, And and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were meeting together. The early church believed in praying together corporately. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that when we gather together for worship, we're to pray for leaders. And we're to pray for the gospel to have free paths by which to travel around the world that that leaders and all wouldn't prevent the gospel from getting out. And, and, and so Paul says to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 2, When you gather together, I urge first of all that prayers and entreaties be made for all men. So again, Jesus isn't forbidding public prayer. But he's rather saying that the bulk of our prayer life needs to be private. Because folks, when we shut, when, we, when, when the Jews back then, many times they had these inner chamber rooms, when they would go into that room and, and shut themselves off from the world and they were in there alone by themselves, it was just them and God, there was nobody to impress. Pride couldn't enter in. It was just you and God. The bulk of our praying ought to be private. In fact, our public Praying just like our public worship needs to be an overflow of what we do in private. If the only time you pray is you pray publicly on Sunday morning at church or in Sunday school or Wednesday night, I tell you what, you need to see that something foundational and fundamental is amiss in your walk with God. If the only time you're praying is praying publicly, We pray privately. Public prayer then just is kind of the overflow of that. But again, he says it's genuine prayers between the person and God. Secondly, he points out genuine prayer must be based upon the belief that God cares. Verse 8, we don't have to wear God out. He's there, He hears, He cares, and He loves you. We don't have to pry His hands open. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11? He says, what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he'll give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. We go before God with the blessed assurance, the conviction 
that as we go before God, we go before a Heavenly Father who loves us. We don't have to do some kind of special things to get His attention. Thirdly, genuine prayer must be addressed to the right source. He says, Our Father who art in heaven. Notice the address there. Our Father who art in heaven. God is imminent. He's our Father. But God is also transcendent. He's in heaven. And so He's close. And yet He's sovereign. He's near. And at the same time, He's high and lifted up. But we must go to God with the conviction that He's our Father. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly Father. Now God is the creator of all men, but He is the Father of only those who belong to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, we are not universalists. We do not believe that everybody is going to be saved. The Bible's very clear on that. Jesus said the road to destruction is broad and there's many who travel that road. The Bible nowhere teaches that everybody is going to be saved. If everybody has a relationship with God, then why in the world is the church today engaged in missions around the globe? Well, that would be the worst stewardship that we could possibly be involved in if we're going to a world that we really don't even need to go to. But Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God, not only peace with God, but access into His presence. So when you hear somebody say, oh, we're just all God's children, no, we're not. We're all God's creation, but we're not all His children. There's no middle ground. Let's explore a moment what it means to go to God as a father. It means we don't have to fear Him in a bad sense. We fear Him in a good sense. The sense of reverence, the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom, the book of Proverbs says. But we don't fear God the way the the pagans of Jesus' day referred to their gods. They believe you always had to appease their gods and their gods were waiting to strike you dead. But God's not that way at all. He's our Heavenly Father. Some of you maybe have a bad memory of your father. Maybe your father was mean or vengeful or never showed you any affection or gone all the time. That's not the biblical image of a father. The biblical image of a father is somebody who loves his children, works to provide for them. He teaches them and nurtures them. Yes, he disciplines them, but he disciplines them out of love for their own good. That's the kind of God that we have. He's our father who art in heaven who watches over us. And so genuine prayer must be addressed to the right source. Fourthly, genuine prayer must be governed by the right priorities. Verses 9 and 10. We first pray for God's interest. What's involved in this? Well, in verse 9 it says, We must pray for God's name to be hallowed. 
little girl came home from church one Sunday and said, Mom and Dad, I know what God's name is. They said, oh, you do? Yeah, God's name's Harold. Where'd you learn God's name's Harold? From my Sunday school teacher. They thought, man, what kind of teachers do we have down there at that church? What do you mean by that? Well, today we studied the model prayer. And it says, Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. It, uh, it, it says, Hallowed be thy name. What in the world does that mean? What Jesus is saying is when we go before God in prayer, a first importance to us should be the things of God. And the first thing among that is God's name. God's name is high and exalted and to be held in the highest esteem. We're to prize Him, to honor Him, to adore Him above all. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. He's sovereign God. Remember when Isaiah got that vision of God in the temple in Isaiah 6? What did he cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. We live in an age where the name of God is used in such a light way. We hear people use His name in vain when they curse. But folks, God's name can be used in vain in many ways. Whenever we use His name lightly or flippantly, we're using the name of God in vain. And we need to keep in mind that the name of God is to be highly esteemed. Imagine living in a culture where people realize there's a holy God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to live like we're going to answer to a holy God because indeed we are. We need to be heartbroken over sin in our lives. And so as we pray for God's name to be high and lifted up and held in the highest esteem... Folks, that ought to motivate us to look at the way that we're living. As we're praying for God's name to be high and exalted, is His name exalted in our lives? Are we living holy? Hallowed be thy name. And then secondly, in verse 10, he says, we must pray for God's kingdom to come. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. Now ultimately we know that this prayer is not going to be fulfilled in the ultimate sense until the end of the tribulation age. Satan's going to be bound. Jesus Christ is going to establish his kingdom right here on earth for a thousand years. It's going to be a little taste of how things were supposed to be before the fall in Genesis 3. But even now we're to be living in such a way to establish his rule. We're to be living in such a way as members of the church that Jesus is in absolute control of our lives, that we're sharing the gospel, that we're involved in missions. You see, folks, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're to strive to be an example of that. There is no way you could pray for God's kingdom to come if you're not involved in the life of a local body of believers. If you're not serving in the local church and using your gifts for the glory of God, how can you pray for God's kingdom to come when you're not even doing a very basic thing? How could you be praying for God's kingdom to come if you're not sharing your faith or involved in missions? And so see again, here's a petition that as we pray it, it forces us to examine our own lives. That Am I doing what I'm praying for here? 
We must also be praying for God's will to be done. Somebody once wisely said, prayer should not be so much an attempt to get our will done in heaven as to get God's will done on earth. Let me give you another analogy I I, I read from East Stanley Jones. Now, Now this one's for you fishermen out there. When your line gets caught over in the bank, when you're casting along the bank and maybe your your lure gets hooked in a rock or a limb over there on the bank, and you pull to get it loose, that is assuming that your line is of a test uh, strength that's strong enough, when you pull to try to get it loose, what happens when you pull? As you pull that line, do you pull that bank over to the boat? Of course not. But as you pull, what happens inadvertently? That boat gravitates slightly to the bank. And so when we pray, it's not God that we're trying to drag over to us, but it's ourselves that we're trying to get closer to God. God's will, unfortunately, is not usually done on the earth right now. Too many people just get up every day and they just go about their will being, uh, their own will being done. But as God's people, we need to pray about God's will being done. Here again, in the big scope of things, when we look at all of redemptive history in the Bible and all of human history, and we see what God is doing through the course of history, history after all is His story. When we see what God is doing with those broad strokes through history, His will is always done and will be done. But how about in those little things of your life, as you get up every day and there's choices you need to make that day and places you need to go and relationships you have and things that you give your time and energy and resources to. Are you doing the will of God? You see here again as we pray this prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think of this. Heaven's always doing the will of God. The angels are always doing the will of God. God, may your will be done on earth. May it be done in my life as it's done in heaven. It forces us, when we pray for the will of God, just like the kingdom of God, it forces us to say, okay, then how am I living? Whose will am I living for? Folks, to put God's interest first, again, doesn't mean we neglect man's needs. We'll talk about man's needs next week. But it means simply that we keep our prayer life in the right balance, the right focus. This morning, I hope it's a great desire of yours to become a man or a woman of prayer. I I dare say that more is lost in the life of an individual or the corporate life of a church by neglect of prayer than anything else. We all know that prayer is important, but then it seems like it's the first thing that we tend to forget about in the course of the day. 
I like what somebody once said. They said, you know what? I am too busy not to pray. Boy, that ought to be our attitude, right? I'm too busy not to pray. I need God's help. I need His wisdom. Boy, what a mess I'd make of every day. If I'd just launch out and do it all on my own. Too busy not to pray. That ought to be our attitude. This morning, I want to challenge you to think of a few times in the course of your day when you could get away privately somewhere, maybe just 10, 15 minutes. Would you do that next week? Just think ahead of time what some of those times throughout the day would be. Set an alarm on your wristwatch or on your cell phone. And again, don't tell, nobody needs to know what you're doing. Just this next week, certain times throughout the day. Just to help you keep your focus and God first. Set an alarm. Get away privately. Shut yourself off from the world and shut yourself off unto God. 10, 15 minutes, a couple times a day. Do that this next week. And as you get along with God, think about the content of your prayers. Don't just launch right in with God, I need this and I want this. Spend some time in praise and worship where you hallow the name of the Lord. Pray about what God's doing in the world where He might have you join Him in His business. Pray for the lost. Pray for missionaries connected with our church. Pray for others in the church body who have needs. Then pray for your needs. Some people occasionally find it very helpful to have a little prayer journal. Where they write down their petitions, they go back later and they date what happened. What was the answer to that prayer? If that helps you, if that's an aid in your praying, by all means do it. Go out and buy your little notebook, keep a little prayer journal. Do that. But most importantly, let me say to somebody here today, somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God, you can't even launch out and do this yet. Your, your prayer right now is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because again, as the book of Hebrews points out so well, as Romans and Hebrews both point out so well, it is only after we have been redeemed through the shed blood of Christ, only after we've come to God the Father through His Son and that sacrifice that He made there on the cross, only after that's been taken care of in our lives do we have access before the throne of God. A lot of people are running around in the world and they're trying to have access to the throne of God through ways that God's not even dealing with men and women based on those ways. God's dealing with men and women on the basis of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so you need to know Him. You need to be redeemed. You need to be born again if you want to have prayer life. And so I want to invite you down front in just a moment. I'd love to pray with you about being born again. Maybe others in this place who have the assurance that they are born again. Maybe you want to come to the altar in a public way and say, God, I've gotten so far away from what a disciple's prayer life ought to be. 
I've lost my focus in prayer. I, I'm so selfish, self-willed. I, 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 many times I don't even pray. Many days. And maybe you just need to do some soul searching over that. I invite you to come forward as well.